they know why you're there. They, they understand your motivation, that it's for their good and that it's to serve their Lord. It's amazing how many will just have questions and they'll just want to talk and you don't start those conversations. You, you know, work through them as the, the Holy Spirit provides. And so you can really overthink a lot of this process, but it's really about being there, doing uh, what you're doing in service to the Lord. Welcome to Biblical Counseling in Action. I'm Steve Byers, and this is a podcast that addresses questions like, how do these principles penetrate every facet of local church ministry? What does it look like when biblical counseling starts to impact the youth ministry, or our ladies' Bible studies, or our men's ministries, or the way leaders function together, or the way decisions are made in the church? And what does it look like in the lives of everyday church members who have been trained, or maybe who have been counseled, but now they're continuing to live out these principles in everyday life. That's what this podcast is all about. Welcome back. Today it's our privilege to talk to Adam Murphy, who oversees the homeless and community outreach for the city of Lafayette. Adam also teaches one of our adult Bible fellowships here at Faith Church, and has provided some very, very strategic leadership for our community ministry initiatives, and I'm so very, very thankful for him. Today we want to talk about the relationship between biblical counseling principles and a church being involved in community ministry. So, so what does biblical counseling in action look like in our community? And Adam, I just can't thank you enough for your willingness to be with us today. I've always thought of you as being a modern-day Esther whose relative Mordecai said that she was placed in her position in the king's household for such a time as this. And you know, Adam, I've just often thought that you serving in our city the way you do and then being able to lead our church's community ministries has been such an incredible blessing from God's hand. And so that's the way I think about you, and I'm, I'm really excited just to share you and share your story with our listeners today. And ultimately, it's to glorify our Lord and Savior, because I see Him working in and through you in just amazing ways in this community. And so I want that story to get out, and then I want other men and women who are going to listen to this to think, well, how could God use me in my city? Or who's the Adam Murphy in our church family or in our evangelical community? And so how can we spread that? So just thank you so much for the way you've allowed God to, to use you. And I think it might be helpful for our listeners, first of all, just to hear you explain what actually is your role in the city of Lafayette. Yeah, my primary function is with our homeless services. We have a grant from the federal government that gives us housing assistance for folks that are chronically homeless, meaning that they've been homeless for at least a year or over a course of the last few years, a total of a year. But they also have to have barriers, so things like mental illness, substance use, HIV, however we uh, define that. And we're able to get them housing, keys to an apartment anywhere in the community that will take our money. And then the goal, which that's the easy part to get them into the housing, the goal then after that is how to keep them housed, how to mitigate some of the factors that kept them from being housed in the past with case management. And so that's what I primarily do and what I'm primarily responsible for. But because of that position there, I also have to work with the other social service and homeless service agencies in town 
And so there's a quite a bit of collaboration that we all have to do. I also uh, have the opportunity to work with neighborhoods. And so we do some neighborhood development, not just around homelessness, about all sorts of things, including affordable housing development and how to improve a neighborhood. A lot of that has to do with some of my training in the past, but I've been with the city for 13 years, and that's kind of the unique position that they have me in. Is that typical for a city to have a position like this? Because I don't think, if I didn't know you personally, I'm not sure I would have even recognized that the average city would have an Adam Murphy. So is that fairly typical or is that unique to Lafayette? My particular mix is unusual, but those functions can occur just maybe it might look different in other people's communities. So for some cities, it's the community development department, and they're going to work with the neighborhoods and do the neighborhood development. Occasionally, they'll have a homeless program, but they may just have a homeless coordinator. So the programs are done in the community, but the coordinator will coordinate with other social service agencies and try to bring the city into those conversations. And so in all communities, there's some version of this. In our community, it's unique in that it's combined. And you also then function as a liaison from the city to so many other nonprofits. So you've Mm -hmm. got your finger on the pulse of what's happening with a number of the great men and women who are serving in this town in all sorts of ways. Yeah, there's always a network or a group that gets together to coordinate people. And so being a part of that network gets you at the table. And then there's opportunities to be on boards and to sit in on strategic discussions. And being from the city, you're kind of implanted in many of those because some of the funding comes from us. But for others, you know, the Salvation Army Board or the Recovery Cafe Board or whatever, you're just kind of brought in on other conversations that dovetail with your work. And there's a lot of opportunity out there to get involved. See, when I think about economic development, I think about building buildings and that sort of thing. But there's another layer of this that is trying to address people who may be struggling in our communities as well. And that might fall under the economic development process in a typical city. Or community development. The different cities call these things different things. But there's usually some money from the federal government that means that cities need to have staff that are organized around it. And that's where you look. And so that's true as well, even for someone who might say, well, I'm not sure my city is motivated from a philanthropic or a compassionate perspective. The bottom line, I mean, the raw truth of this is, if a city wants access to that kind of federal funding, then they have to have the positions and services in place. Is that true? That's right. There's money to spend, and cities are really good at spending other people's money. And so uh, someone gets assigned that task. And so is there a sense in which for any follower of Christ or church who is interested in doing community-based outreach ministry, they need to find out who the Adam Murphy is? Is that true? They need to follow the money and see where in the city that it's spent. And usually somewhere in that orbit, there's someone that you can have a dialogue with about where you might fit into that or where the needs are in the community. There's a whole range of discussions to have with someone in that position. And just to make it clear to our listeners, we're certainly not concerned about the money ourselves. We don't make any money in community development. Our interest is where are the ministry opportunities, but instead of trying to go at it alone, any way that we can collaborate with good people who are already doing this, but who may have openness to faith-based organizations participating, that's the sweet spot for us. Is that true? That is true. That is true. And, and in fact, that's kind of the story of how Faith CDC got started. There was a 
money sitting there that typically other agencies had spent, but one agency in particular had gone out of business. And so for several years, the city had money on the table that they can't spend themselves. They have to partner with someone to do it. And the mayor and the development director, community development director, and the economic development director, all of them were kind of thinking, well, who could we get to kind of raise up to do that? Talk to many different agencies, and they were just coming up empty. And then one of them said, well, what about faith? And the reason that that came up that way was faith had uh, a reputation at the time, which continues, of collaborating well, of being a good steward of the resources that they had, of doing some real estate development and being able to manage the properties that they had well. And so the mayor loved that idea. And thankfully, the church also loved that idea because it dovetailed right with what the church was doing, just not as a community development corporation. This was just a new tool in the toolbox to do some things. But through that tool, we're able to build up neighborhoods using funding that was just not even being spent. And I think that's part of the lesson, isn't it, is, you know, we didn't walk in on day one and say to the mayor, we're here to start a community development corporation. Mm -hmm. By God's grace, we had relationships in place, in part from someone like you and others Mm -hmm. who were just godly followers of Jesus Christ, serving in the city, serving well, serving compassionately. There was a reputation, there was a track record that was there. And then whenever the city had some sort of a need, even if it was a small need, mm-hmm. it just fit right into our view of community outreach to do that. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Mm-hmm. I remember one day we were having a conversation with the mayor when he had some building downtown that needed to be demolished and there was a lack of funds in that particular budget and he really just wanted it down because it was um, unsafe for people um, in the downtown community. So he contacted me and said, hey, could you get some people together to tear down that building? And I said, well, Mayor, we're Baptists. If we're good at anything, it's tearing stuff up. And so we had a whole large army of people down there tearing down that building. But that's part of it. If the mayor has a need or some other entity in our town has a need, we would certainly want them to say, well, faith will do that, Mm -hmm. because we will. We're more than happy to serve, and it's like pulling out the thread of a sweater. You just take whatever opportunity is there at the time, and then you just pull that one. And if you do it well, if you serve, then you're going to be asked to do something else and something else and something else. And then when it came the opportunity for the CDC, the city needed a CDC because, frankly, funds were being left on the table because we didn't have one. Is that true? That's right. And, you know, a lot of uh, groups talk themselves out of those partnerships because they assume that, well, they won't want us, they won't want to touch the third rail of the faith-based organization or whatever. And that's not really how that conversation goes. How it goes is who can help us get where we need to be and who has goals that are aligned with ours. And faith wanted to see the community get better. So that's an aligned goal. The city wanted to spend the money. It just seemed to be a great fit. There was a lot of trust built up over years. And, you know, you could have talked yourself out of doing something really cool with the city, but the city wasn't asking anyone to talk themselves out of anything. And yet uh, a lot of churches are in that boat where they just assume 
that they're not welcome in that conversation. And that I find by and large, that's not true. Well, and you know, I'm sure some of our listeners would say, but if you get involved with the state in some way, mm-hmm. you're going to have to compromise your values. You're going to have to go against what you believe, et cetera, et cetera. That has certainly not been our experience. No. And I understand why people would be concerned of that because certainly the, the mission of the church is something you don't want to compromise on at all. But the, the mission of helping people, the mission of building relationships, of improving the community that we all live in, would seem to be a common goal that we can just do short of the different activities that make people nervous. So what you'll find on some of the funding guidelines is that you can't proselytize. That's actually a very narrow activity. You kind of have to go out of your way to proselytize someone. And it's really not what you're there to do anyway. You're there to improve the community. And as people have questions... You're there to answer questions. You're there to be a part of the conversation that they invite. But you're not there to hit them over the head. I mean, that no one really gets into it for that reason. And the city knows that. The funding is set up in such a way that you can be yourself to do the things that you would normally do as a church without compromising. They've really worked hard to make that funding available so that everyone could be who they are and everyone benefits as well. And so you, you kind of think about you know, a Catholic hospital. For example, the community sure loves getting medical treatment, and there's not really a lot of thought on, well, am I going there for a salvation message or am I going there to get a repaired arm? And and that's kind of the the thought process for even city government is how many faith-based partners can we bring to the table to get needs met? And that other stuff, I mean, it's not total non-consideration, but it's really, really, really low on the list. Well, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad in the sovereignty of God that our church was named Faith Church, and the CDC was named Faith Community Development Corporation. We're not hiding who we are. People who know us know we're a Bible-believing church. Most people in the town know that. Not everybody likes that, but they know that we're a Bible-believing church. And we made a promise to our church family long ago that we would not compromise biblical truth, we would not compromise the gospel in order to be involved in any kind of community endeavor. I think what those who don't know the Lord mean by the word proselytize many times is to initiate a conversation about trusting Christ without any kind of prior relationship at all, or in a way that puts that person in an uncomfortable position. But they certainly don't mean that once that relationship is established and as a natural course of the relationship, we have complete freedom to talk about anything from the Word of God that that person is interested in discussing. Certainly have the opportunity to talk about what it means to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And I know the mayor has even said to me from time to time when things have gotten a bit hot over various things in our community, he said, stand your ground. That's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're a church. Everybody knows you're a church. We're not asking you to compromise your values. You just have to function appropriately when you're working in our community. I remember one time when we were doing some work with um, one of our homeless agencies, and we were providing meals for them, which was a delightful opportunity in so many ways. They asked us not to have a large public prayer because not everybody who was there to receive the meal was comfortable with that, and so they asked us not to do that. And then we had to make a decision. Were we going to continue to serve with them or not? And so what we did, we, we came alongside and said, well, would it be okay if we offered the persons who are receiving the meal, if they would like to pray with us individually, we're more than happy to do that. 
And so that's what we would do at the beginning of the meal. We would just tell them who we are. We would tell them we're glad to serve them. If they would like us to pray about any needs they have, our volunteers are there prepared to do that if they ask. And what we have found is that the guests are very open to having mm -hmm. somebody pray with them, and they're very open to giving specific requests that they have. So you can pray one-on-one -on -one during the meal or after the meal in a much more meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in a general prayer before the meal, right, you're not going to say all these specific things about this person or that person. So now you can pray in, in a much more appropriate way. The director is very comfortable. Nobody has any concern about what we're doing. And so you just have to decide, are you willing to be creative in the accomplishment of your mission as you collaborate with other people? The other option for us would have been, well, start your own homeless ministry where you can do whatever you want. And I'm not saying that would be wrong, but haven't we found that, generally speaking, collaboration is a better way to go? Well, and that's a perfect example because I've been to the, those meals and participated, and I've been there when the faith volunteers haven't been serving. It was someone else or just a general meal. The temperature in the room is different when the volunteers, the church volunteers are there. And so you immediately notice the difference when a faith or another church comes in and, and makes that a part of their ministry. But then the conversations that happen at the tables while we're all eating, because they know what faith stands for, they know why you're there, they, they understand your motivation, that it's for their good and that it's to serve their Lord. It's amazing how many will just have questions and they'll just want to talk. And you don't start those conversations. You you know, work through them as the, the Holy Spirit provides. And so the, you can really overthink a lot of this process, but it's really about being there, doing uh, what you're doing in service to the Lord. And if that means not praying, fine. You know, we might acknowledge it a different way, but I'm still there. And the people want to talk that are in the room. And so there's just a lot of ways to do community ministry that doesn't look like a church service. And that's kind of the point. You know, this is about building relationships with people. If they wanted a church service, they know where to find that. And they, they do come for that, but there are others that don't. And so you're serving in a different way. You're available in a, in a different way. It, it's pretty unique, those conversations you have, but it may not be quite what you thought. Going well, on. and I think it also just requires dependence on the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. because these are some messy situations that our church members get themselves into because we want to be right at the tip of the spear of what mm -hmm. are the greatest needs in our community, and we want to be there, motivated by the love of Christ, prepared to serve any way we can, with the hopeful desire that we can share Jesus with some of the persons that we're serving. But you never know. You sit down at a meal with a homeless person, you never know what's going to come up. You never know what is going to be said, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why you just need the Holy Spirit, and you're relying on the Holy Spirit to give you the words that you need in the moment. You know, in thinking about biblical counseling principles, and I, I kind of remember some of the things that got me interested in biblical counseling principles to begin with. We had started uh, church regularly and as members in 2003, and then shortly after that, I started working for a nonprofit faith-based housing provider in town, and I was realizing that I needed more meat to deal with just, there were situations in life that were keeping people from being successful from the program. So my actual first encounter, you probably don't remember this, my first actual encounter with biblical counseling was sitting with a couple that was in our program and they were really struggling. And the church, Faith had offered to say, hey, you know, um, if we need counseling, it's free here. And uh, our director had made a call straight over and we got them uh, straight in. And so I sat with them 
in your office. And <laughs> no, I don't remember this. For several sessions, things were going, and everyone was pleasant and whatever. But by about the third or fourth session, one of the couple in particular was not interested in being held accountable. So one half the couple didn't come one week. They left a voicemail on your phone saying, you know, this is why I'm not there. It was because of this other person's behavior. He comes with me, and uh, you confront him on the behavior. And before, it must have been five, six minutes, he's out the door. He's walking back to Lafayette because the counseling center at that time was several miles from his home. It would have been a long walk. And so it was just you and I sitting there. I was not in a big hurry to go pick him up because I knew where he was going. I'd pick him up on the way, but uh, we were just kind of talking about how that went, next steps, and, and it felt, I'm sure at the time, you know, that this didn't work out. But I also know during the time that you we were talking with him, and I was really just observing, we were talking about heart issues. We were talking about the things that really mattered. So regardless of whether it turned on the dime like we were hoping, the heart was revealed. And from then, I, I thought, well, there, there's clearly something here that I think could apply to how I, I deal with people day to day. So I took track one and two at the BCTT, the Biblical Counseling Training Conference. And at the end of the second track, I remember it was the plenary speaker, it might have been you, it might have been someone else, that said, if, if you're here a lay leader, or you've come as a lay person and you're wondering how to use these principles, talk to your pastor or talk to your Sunday school teacher. And so my Sunday school teacher was Bob Smith. Wow. And I said, Bob, I'm just following orders. I was told to talk to you because I've been through track two now. And he said, come uh, with me on a Monday afternoon and just sit next to me during a counseling session. He also had me uh, do a little bit of the teaching in the class. Uh, he, I'd do one or two points of, of the lesson, and then he'd clean it up <laughs> uh, <laughs> after that. But, you know, sitting with Bob, a tr- tremendous teacher, the value of a well-worded question, the idea of, you know, where's God in that, and just getting to the heart quickly, not wasting time and listening and and hearing, but then just piercing to where we needed to discuss. I mean, that that's what I needed to see. And so for about a year, year and a half, he and I kind of co-counseled, and and then my job situation changed where I couldn't take Monday afternoons off. But in that year and a half, and then kind of moving forward, I just saw this example of how to talk to people about their heart. And so when I take that out to the community, you know, there's a lot of issues. And, and I remember catching Jay Adams between sessions one time, and I said, Dr. Adams, is there a way to use biblical counseling principles for a non-believer? And I hadn't read enough of his material to know that he gets that question all the time. But, you know, he kind of answered it and basically said, no, not really. I mean, unless you're doing pre-counseling to win them to Christ. And I was disappointed in that answer, but I understood the answer. And I'm not, I wouldn't disagree with them on it. I thought, well, surely there's a way. Surely there's a way. And the more I did the work, the more I used the principles, I realized, well, it is true that these principles are helpful for people to see the gospel. But I was surprised at how many people I would meet that I would start to gradually introduce the principles. And they would say that they're a believer, but they had never heard the gospel explained that way. They've never truly trusted that the Bible could speak to their individual situation. So when you walk slowly through a 2 Corinthians 5.9 or a 1 Corinthians 10.13 or Romans 8.28 and 29, and you kind of break it down for them in its individual parts, it could be revelatory for them. And there was great hope in it. And so even just the basic principles brought in in a conversation at the right time with the right situation, I have found those principles to really hit at the bedrock of the conversation, build relationships 
through it, giving great hope through the principles themselves. So let's say somebody's listening to this who works in city government or works in a secular nonprofit, yet they would consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ, and they're longing for and looking for ways to integrate their faith with the work that they're doing out in the community every day. Would you advise them to receive biblical counseling training so that they're better prepared to do that? I would, and I'll tell you the first reason why, they'll be changed by it. Uh, The idea that you're going to go out into the world and be different, sometimes you need to know why you're different, and and you need to know exactly how to... So many things we do as believers we're we're doing because it it just seems like the right thing to do, and yeah, you can back up Scripture with it eventually, but but to be more deliberate about it, say, I'm doing this because my goal is to please Christ, or I'm doing this because he'll see me through this trial, and I know that because of this verse here. Living that way and training yourself in that way, when people do encounter you and they see you handle trials differently, you handle tough conversations better than other people do, and then they ask you why you do it that way, and then you can tell them, it makes all the difference in the world, rather than, a, well, you know, I'm, I'm just doing this because that comes naturally because I'm a believer. Well, that goes so far. But to say, well, it says here, and if you go to Ephesians 4, you can really change, you know, to really talk through your process and how you look at progressive sanctification, it's, I used this word before, but it is revelatory. It's kind of like an aha moment for people in the community, not just to see how different you are, but to know why and to know where the blueprint is and and all that. And I got that through the biblical counseling training. Yeah, one of the uh, catchphrases that we use even to describe what we're doing in biblical counseling training is you need to know what to say and you need to know how to say it. Mm. And it sounds to me like that's what BC training did for you because Mm. you're on the tip of the spear with the persons that you're serving, Mm. but you want to be prepared, as Peter said, to give every person a reason for the hope that lies within you with all meekness and fear. Is that Mm -hmm. what you're saying? That's right. And, you know, when you meet someone in need, there's that pregnant moment where you have their full attention and they see you there and they're looking to receive. It's kind of like... uh, Peter and John at the temple, beautiful, and it's the man asking for money, silver and gold. I don't have that. But what I do have, I'll give to you. And, you know, you have that full attention. And as clear as you can be about it, the better. Uh, Because later, uh, sometimes you don't have their full attention, even after you've helped. And so it's just really good to be prepared. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to be there, and uh, he's going to give you what you need. But being trained, you just seem to get further than just relying on the Holy Spirit to, to spoon-feed you right before it happens. So you've been doing this for a long time. I'm curious, and I think our listeners would be too, about how have you developed such a heart of compassion for people who are struggling in our community, and how are you avoiding cynicism? You work with persons. You even mentioned the case that you observed with me that I long ago forgot about, where it, at least in that moment did not go well. Persons mm-hmm. did not want to hear the truth of the Word of God. They did not want to be held accountable for their choices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so how do you avoid cynicism, and how do you develop a compassionate heart that's not just going to last for six months, but it's going to last for decades? Well, I would say one of the first things, and this is a principle through biblical counseling as well, the idea that today we're counseling, I'm on this side of the table, and tomorrow I could be on the other side of the table. You could be counseling me as a believer. There's a sense that that's true, that when someone is, let's say, homeless or they don't have a place to stay, that's a temporary condition. It doesn't define a person. It's just kind of where they're at. And the more people that you meet in that condition, you realize they come 
to that situation from all sorts of angles. So it, there's no one size fits all on, on really about any social problem you can talk about. Understanding then that could be you. Some folks are just one paycheck away from homelessness, or you could think of a series of two or three things that would happen in close succession that would change your fortunes completely. And so understanding that you could be there as well, you would want the help, how would you want to be treated? That is very instructive for me, very helpful. The other thing that's very helpful is when you focus on long-term relationships. And so you can get cynical about the people that you're doing the, the one or two thing where you're kind of giving out some food or you're you know giving out Christmas gifts or whatever. And while they didn't seem very thankful or you know that was kind of a one-off and it's easy to get cynical about that, I'll tell you there's a lot going on in that encounter that is not obvious to anybody at the time, but you hear about it later down the road as you meet people and they talk about those encounters downstream. But when you're in these long-term relationships where you see um, even minimal amounts of growth or you see failure, 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 I don't see you for a while, suddenly I see success. And you can't even explain it, but it tells you there's hope down the road. If I'm only engaged in short-term relationships, I won't see it. But if I position myself to be engaged in long-term relationships, you'll start to see those things that will encourage you to continue on with the humility of knowing you could be there, but also the, the long-term view of what I'm saying to you today might not even click for five to six years. could be 20 years. But, you know, you talk to that single mother, for example, you say, you know, things aren't going well right now. Where do you see yourself in five years? You ask those aspirational questions. You get them to look down the road just like you're looking down the road as you imagine them progressing. They start to lose their cynicism too. There's hope in thinking about where we could be if we really started to put things in order. And I think that's hope for the counselee or the, the person you're serving. And it's hope for the counselor or the person serving. Think long-term and you're going to be able to get past a lot of cynicism. Well, and isn't it great that we serve the God of hope? And <laughs> I right. love the fact that that's one of the names that he's chosen for himself. And I really appreciate you saying that, Adam, mm-hmm. because that provides hope both for us and hopefully for the people that we're serving. Is it fair to say that there's uh, a fairly good number of men and women in this community who at one time were homeless, mm. but who have worked through their challenges, have been able to be successfully housed, are working in the community, and are doing far better? Yeah, in general, when you think about homelessness, there's only about 15% that we would call the, the chronic, the hardcore, this is the regular cycle. Most folks are homeless no more than a week or maybe 30 days. Even when they go through the, the process of getting help, you know, there, it's a really a quick turnaround. So yeah, there will be folks that you meet that seem successful now that will tell you about the homelessness that they had in the past. There'll be people now homeless that later on you're going to find they're doing just as well as you would think anyone else. They're not going to necessarily live your way. So if you can kind of relinquish that, you know, selfish desire then you're going to see someone roughly successful at life, even though um, it may not look quite what you had envisioned for them. But being homeless and intervening in that moment gives you a unique gospel opportunity. And you can decide that, well, it's never going to get any better, so I'm going to take myself out of the conversation. Or you can decide that's exactly the moment I want to be in. What kind of advice would you give to a pastor? who's looking for the next. I'm sure I'm going to start getting all sorts of emails and phone calls. We want Adam. We, <laughs> How do we get Adam? We want to buy Adam. Is there a Major League Baseball transfer here in the works, et cetera, et cetera? But seriously, how does a, a pastor find the next Adam Murphy in their life? 
the way I tend to think about the uh, function that I have is one is a translator. There's a sense that at the city, they talk a certain language. Even in the community, they talk a certain language. And then we talk a certain language at the church. And when you find someone that can intersect with all of those and then kind of translate over, when they said this, what they were expressing was this is the, the struggle. Or maybe even to kind of give some background on these were the, the six to seven conversations we had before we even talked with you. And so this is what built up to what you heard to try to help people navigate that translator role is so critical because believe it or not, we're all kind of headed in the same direction, you know, and we're many times we're just talking past each other. And so someone that kind of has their feet in several different arenas can help navigate uh, when things get a little bit sticky. What I would say, though, if you're not finding a person with their feet in all those is I just encourage people to send someone to the table. Just start sending people to the conversations. The, anytime there's a community planning that even is a rock's throw from what you guys do, just be at the meeting. And uh, nothing may come of it, but attendance is taken at meetings. I mean, it could be as simple as they have a track record of showing up when we talk about important things. So far, they haven't really found where they fit, but they're always at the conversation. And well, now you're inviting people to come in and engage you. And I guess the, the third thing is even if it just seems like you know, we don't really fit in. This is what I tell my interns. <laughs> Just get front and center with the need. So if you're finding people that are homeless, for example, and you have a heart for that, then go there and, and listen and ask the aspirational questions. Find out all it, that it means to serve these people. If that's where your heart is. Just be there and become an expert in what those folks need. Someone's going to come to you and ask, well, what did you learn? while you were serving. And suddenly you have this expertise. Folks that are providing the money, they're not at the ground. And so they rely on people at the ground to tell them what to spend their money on. And again, this is not a fundraising question, but it's about, can I be center point in the need and center point in the solution? Well, if you're center point in knowing what the issues are, then you're going to be approached about how to organize the resources around you. And so you know, it looks a lot like just getting busy and uh, being there, and then the opportunity will come the longer that you're there doing the work, but be learning and be knowing. One last thing that was really helpful when we started the CDC and all the other, we defined a boundary, and it helps to know what part of town you're working on. It helps to know what kind of need you're working on, and then once you're there, you try to learn everything you can about that area and everything you can about what's being done there, who comes from there, who goes there, all that kind of stuff you'll find those resources, you'll find those connections, you'll find the people that have the positions that I do where you can have your foot in several different uh, camps at the same time. Yeah, I, I think that's the strategy. Get in there, do the work, and, and, and learn as much as you can, and some of those things will become obvious. So if a, a church is approached by their city about starting a CDC, what, what would you tell them? Well, of course, my uh, immediate thought is to just say yes, but count the cost. Count the cost. You know, it's not going to be easy. This is not a moneymaker. Some churches think that this is a moneymaker. It's not. It's a service opportunity. I do believe you can break even. I do believe that. I don't believe that you can get rich off of it, and it should never be the issue. This isn't like the child care program that some churches do to kind of make all the ends meet. Nothing wrong with that. But this isn't that program. So count the cost. But if your heart's in it, then I think there is a lot of opportunity to do really great things. And it may not even just be affordable housing. 
you know, our um, CDC is uh, directly involved with the neighborhood center, a community center. It's involved with all these other conversations going on. It's uh, the care team just talking to people about their situation and helping refer them to other agencies in town, connecting people like navigators to social service agencies. So there's a lot of room to operate in that sphere. If approached, I would give it a strong consideration. If I can handle the cost, there are a lot of rewards for doing the work. So is it fair to say this is one of the ways that biblical counseling is hitting the streets, at least for faith? In my opinion, definitely. You, you see it all over. It's got the fingerprints of our biblical counseling principles, both in how we serve, but then how we exemplify Christ after people see how interested we are. I mean, how are you going to answer the question, I see you really care about the neighborhood, now how should I react to that? Or how can I get involved in knowing Christ in that way? How are you going to answer that unless you've got that structure about life change that biblical counseling offers? Well, hey, Adam, thanks a lot for spending the time with us today. And I would just say to our listeners, I would ask you to pray for us. We have so much to learn, so we're not coming from the perspective of experts here. So as the Lord would bring us to your mind, please ask him to give us wisdom as we continue to think about this very issue of what does biblical counseling look like when it hits the streets. I would also encourage you, you know, I didn't script Adam's answers, and so he's talked a lot about the importance of receiving biblical counseling training. And one of the things I'm really excited about is there's more opportunities to receive that training now than ever before regarding when you receive it, regarding the format in which you receive it. All of our trainings now available virtually through a guided virtual platform, and we're very, very thankful. That's one of the quote-unquote blessings of COVID was we learned some things that we didn't necessarily want to learn, but now that we've gone through it, we're very, very glad because we think the flexibility in ministry is going to serve others to a greater degree. Feel free to jump online at faithlafayette.org slash conferences and learn all that you need to learn about that. Let's pray for those of us in the biblical counseling community that we would have a compassion for our community. We'd have a compassion for people who don't know the Lord or who are struggling in some way and see that as an opportunity to bring the gospel to them. Adam, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. Thank you. You can check out more about our ministry at faithlafayette.org. Or if you're interested in receiving biblical counseling training, go to faithlafayette.org slash conferences. You can find these presentations wherever you normally access your podcasts. And you could really help us just to get the word out by telling your friends on social media that these presentations are going to be available. Now, our hope and our prayer is that this podcast honors the Lord and is a blessing to you.